gang, take your Bible if you brought one and open it to Philippians chapter 2. Go to Philippians chapter 2, we'll get there in just a few minutes. I actually came across a word this past week in my study uh, that I had not seen before. Now, I immediately understood the meaning of the word, uh, and that may surprise some of you because uh, I'm not the sharpest guy in the world, but I knew what it meant. I had just never seen it published. I had never seen it used like this. The word was deconversion, deconversion. The word deconversion is floating around religious circles in America because, believe it or not, there are millions of Americans who are not simply walking away from their church. They're walking away from their church, and then they're walking away from their faith. Now, follow me here. My theology tells me that if someone walks away, disbelieves, if you will, in Jesus Christ, his death and burial and resurrection, uh, if they walk away from it, they probably never embraced it in the first place. James chapter 2 tells me that, and Hebrews chapter 6 tells me that. But deconversion is a problem in the American church today. We've talked about this many, many times over the past several years. It all began with the millennials. Millennials became the young skeptics of religion in America. And by the way, doesn't everything start with the millennials? Deconversion. For nearly 30 years now, that's hard to believe I say that out loud, for almost 30 years now, uh, I've been working pretty hard to try and convince skeptical people that there is a mountain of evidence regarding the true Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, the inspiration of the Word of God, the fact that it is divinely inspired. I've been trying to convince people who are skeptical of the church, who doubt whether or not the gospel accounts are actually true. That's why in my office there are many books on the subject. I've got Bible studies and sermons that sprinkled throughout my computer that I've written over the years, trying to, be, trying to get good at talking to someone who doubts the truth of the gospel. But today, and recently, I've been introduced to a new kind of skeptic. The new kind of skeptic doesn't doubt whether or not Christianity is true. The new kind of skeptic in America doubts whether or not it's good. You see, it's not about truth. Many skeptics among us and in the United States, our American culture, they'll give you the truth of the gospel. They don't doubt whether or not Jesus actually lived or died, and maybe even that he rose again. That's not what sticks in their crawl. It's a question for them of whether or not Christianity is good. You see, I've come up believing that Christianity is both true and good. But there's a sweeping generation across America who questions the goodness of Christianity. Now, no doubt Christianity was good right? The word gospel actually means good news. So the story of Jesus, his life, his teaching, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that was good news in the first century. The angel who announced the birth of Jesus said that he was bringing good news for all people. My question is, what's happened? How has that changed? The first century church revolution that swallowed culture, 
toppled governments. We're seeing the opposite today. And I got to be honest with you, if I'm honest with myself, (laughs) I see some problems. You see, in my estimation, the church has become far too political. Some of us seated in this auditorium care more about who we vote for on the first Tuesday in November than we do coming to church. Because in our minds, it's more important to get the right person in the White House than the right person in our hearts, in our lives. The American church has been politicized in our media. We're just a voting block. How are the evangelical Christians going to vote in next year's election? That's the question. The church has assumed the role of social conscience, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. You see, lighting our community is not the same as pointing to its failures. And yet, that's what we're good at. We're the social conscience. Some in the church are compelled, compelled, they're driven to point out all the ills in our society. I mean, that's our job. We're supposed to point it out and then grumble about it. Oh, and by the way, the prosperity doctrine hasn't helped the church either or the cause of Christianity. There are those among us across this great nation, some of the largest churches in America literally teach that if you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to be happy, you're going to be healthy, and you're going to get rich. And people swallow that garbage. We've turned the Bible into a rule book. Oh, I've talked about this a lot. In the church, we've turned God's inspired word into nothing more than a list of rules. We've memorized the references. I know their problem. They need to read Deuteronomy 7. I know his problem. He needs to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We've got a rule for everything in the American church. You see, everybody's life and their circumstance is supposed to fit into a nice, neat little package. That's why policy matters more than people to a lot of churches. And holding on, strict adherence to those policies, that makes us feel good about our doctrine. I'll be honest with you. To a lot of people in the American church, Christianity is nothing more than a get-out-of-jail-free card kind of thing, right? I've heard it called fire insurance, right? Hey, I'll be honest with you. When I was 10 and I got baptized, I knew nothing about following Jesus, I knew nothing about cross-bearing and self-denial, discipleship. I just didn't want to go to hell. Look, I believe that we've got to consider the reality that we, the church, we've had something to do with this perception that Christianity is not good. The church must share some of the blame. See, you and I need to consider the role that we play in God's plan. The kingdom of God, the great commission. You and I, we're a part of that. It's up to us. We're the mouthpiece in our community because we possess something incredibly valuable when it comes to how people perceive our faith. And it's this, influence. You have influence. As insignificant as you may feel, as insignificant as I may be, we still have influence among your family and your friends, your coworkers and the world even. You see, when Jesus said, go and tell my story, baptize people, make them disciples, he's telling you, use your influence. For the next few weeks, Tyler and I, we want to remind you of that influence. 
We want to remind you of your place in God's plan. The fact is, you and I have influence, and we spend it like currency, either for good or for bad. You see, because the fact is, Christianity is good. The gospel was and is good news. Whatever perversion of the gospel has taken place, you and I still have a voice. We have influence. Fact is, the gospel is about authentic faith, not politics, not who sits in the White House. The gospel, the good news, is about treating my fellow man with respect, not condemning my fellow man using the word of God. Authentic faith is about following the example of Jesus Christ, not proclaiming myself or the church as the example for others to follow. The gospel is about a living faith, not dry and dusty doctrine or old theology. The gospel is about acting on my beliefs, you see, not imposing them on others. Do you realize that when it comes to Christianity, authentic faith in Jesus Christ, it's about being and doing. How do I know I'm a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, I'm becoming someone I wasn't. I'm doing things I didn't. But the church has turned the gospel into what we believe and then imposing that on other people. Let me tell you something. Hollywood doesn't care what you believe. Those big-time cities across the Northeast, they don't care what you believe, what we believe in this church. They don't need to know what we believe. They certainly don't want us to try and impose those beliefs on them. You know what they'd love to see? They'd love to see us be who we claim to be and do what Jesus did. You see, the gospel is good news for all people, all people, not just people who are like me or like you or the people you like. The Bible, the good news, it's for all people. Here's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 28. I'll put it on the screen. Paul wrote, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, there's no discrimination in the family of God. When Jesus arrived, he brought good news for all people, Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, males, females. You see, we're all the same across the board. Every one of us is the same because we all share the same need. And Jesus offers to meet that need. So let me ask you something. Were I to ask you, what is the one distinguishing characteristic for followers of Jesus Christ, the one distinguishing mark that's supposed to set us apart as belonging to God, what would it be? Jesus said in John chapter 13, he gave us the mark. Before I tell you what it is, I'm going to tell you what it's not. It's not our political platform. It's not how we voted in the last election. It's not the candidate we hope to put in Congress. It's not our doctrine. It's not our beliefs. It's not our Bible. It's not our history. It's not our tradition. What is the one distinguishing characteristic that every follower of Jesus Christ ought to possess? It's not our denomination. It's not our houses of worship. It's not our music. It's not our judgment and condemnation of our culture. What is it? 
What is the one distinguishing mark? On the night Jesus was betrayed, John chapter 13, John records the following. It's verse 34. Jesus said, a new command I give you. Now, that was a very big statement, believe it or not, because the Jews were living under 600 and some odd commandments. Jesus comes along with the power and the authority and the self-confidence to say, I've got a new one. When Jesus said, I've got a new command to share with you, he was saying, I'm more important than Moses. I'm more important than the Ten Commandments. He was saying, I'm more important than your Old Testament. A new command I give you, love one another. Now, this is not golden rule kind of love. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? Or in my household, it was more like do unto others before they can do it unto you, right? This is the kind of love Jesus has for us. Love one another as I have loved you. That's the benchmark for followers of Jesus Christ. So you must love one another. And by this, Everyone is going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You see, our mark as followers of Christ, our mark as Christians, is not the fish on our trunk, right? It's not that license plate that says, you know, follow me to church, or God is my co-pilot. <laughs> my mark as a follower of Jesus Christ is not my theology. It's not my book. It's not my beliefs. It's not my doctrine. It's certainly not my political viewpoints. It has nothing to do with our houses of worship. It has nothing to do with the lines that we draw in culture, separating good from evil. The mark is our love. Everything has to do with our love. So let me ask you, how do you love? How do you love? Now, I'm not talking about the people who are just like you. I'm not talking about the people who you like. I'm not talking about just the people who agree with you. I'm talking about how do you love those who are unlike you? Different races, different backgrounds, different sexuality, different cultures. How do you love? You see, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to use the good news in ways that benefit our fellow man. Rather than use the good news to divide our fellow man, the good news is supposed to bring us together. Because God has a plan, and you play a critical role in the development and the ongoing of that plan. Here's how Jesus described you and me. Long before you ever heard the story of the good news, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 14. You, that's you, by the way. It's not me. It's not the person sitting next to you. That's you. You are the light of the world let your light shine before others, watch this, that they may see. Not that they may hear, not, 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 not that they may feel condemned, not that they may feel ostracized, but they'll see. They'll see what? Your good deeds. Not your book, not how many verses you've memorized, not how many ways you can wag your finger in shame upon others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You know what Jesus was saying? Jesus was saying, if you're truly one of my followers and your faith is authentic, you ought do good deeds that cause people to say, wow, those are good deeds. He must have a good father. Those are good deeds. He must have a good Lord. 
See, that's our calling. That's, that's our mission. That's one of the things that may be missing from your world life, your worldview. And again, this idea of loving and lighting, this has nothing to do with the people who agree with you. It has everything to do with the people who don't. This is for your crazy in-law that drives you insane. That's what this is for. See? This is for the guy at work that gets under your skin because he's got a Black Lives Matter bumper sticker. This is for those crazy progressives in Washington that you can't stand to be around. This is for the gay relative. This is for that crazy liberal that lives next door, that clueless millennial that gets under your skin. It's your calling. It's your calling, love and light. So how in the world are we going to pull that off? How in the world are we going to do that? And i got to be honest with you. <laughs> if there are those around who consider my faith not good, Am I open-minded enough to at least take some of the responsibility for that perception? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Paul tells us how to respond. Philippians chapter 2. Look at verse 5. Paul writes, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now remember, your faith in Christ is about being and doing. Not simply believing and imposing. It's about being and doing. What he's about to tell us, this is how Jesus Christ did, and this is who Jesus Christ was. In your relationships with others, have the same mindset as Jesus. That means he's not only my savior, he becomes my model. What Jesus did becomes more important than an Old Testament passage of Scripture. How Jesus loved is more important than the Ten Commandments. This is, what Jesus, this is what Paul is saying. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. That's why people flocked to Jesus. They had never seen a God like this. This God had all the power. He held all the cards. He had all the authority in our theology. We teach the coexistence and the co-eternality of the Godhead, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are three in one God. They are all equal. They are all eternal. Jesus was God. He brought with him all of God's authority, all of God's power. And what did he do with it? He didn't demand that everybody serve him. He didn't demand everybody sacrifice for him. He served and sacrificed everyone else. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used as his own advantage. Rather, verse 7, he made himself nothing. He took on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Skip ahead to verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Wait a minute, wait a minute. 
I thought we found eternal life by God's grace through faith. What's this about work? Is Paul saying somehow we earn our righteousness before God? Not at all. Not at all. Paul is pointing to authentic faith, which is what causes us to respond to God's grace in the first place. And when that faith is authentic, it will always be accompanied by good deeds. It will always be accompanied by a change in mindset. It will always be accompanied by a servant mentality and love. See, God or Christianity, excuse me, is about being and doing for others. In light of my faith in Jesus Christ, who was for me and did for me. That's what Paul is saying. So work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, for it is God who works in you both the will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Man, would that be nice? That would be fantastic. Imagine if every follower of Jesus Christ just stopped grumbling about the White House. Stop grumbling about the LBGT agenda. Stop grumbling about the progressives. Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may become, may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Notice what he just said. God knows ours is a warped and crooked generation. He doesn't need the church to point it out. He doesn't need your Facebook posts to let everybody know how off the rails popular culture has become. He doesn't need it. As a follower of Jesus Christ, I need to stop pursuing innocence as though I'm innocent before God. And I need to embrace God's forgiveness. That's what I need to do. Keep reading. Then you will shine among them, watch this, like stars... In the sky. This is how all men will know that we know Jesus. We take on the attitude of Christ. We humble ourselves. We serve others in love. We refuse to argue. We stop our grumbling. We're grateful for the forgiveness we found in Christ. Look, church, here's the cold, hard, honest truth. If Christianity is considered not good in our culture, perhaps that's because we're not very good in our culture. If Christianity is considered not good, maybe that's because I'm not very good. You see, if people around me believe that I love my book more than I love them, that's not good. It's not good. If people around me believe that I love my political candidate, my worldview, my political platform more than I love them, that's not good. If people around me believe I, be, I love my doctrine, my beliefs more than them, that's not good either. If people around me believe that I love my stance against homosexuality more than them, that is not good. Look, if we can imagine a better world, then we need to start seeing, visualizing our place in it. Because we have influence. And rather than using our influence to ostracize other people, maybe we should concentrate on our love. We need to love like Jesus. We need to help like Jesus. We need to get involved like Jesus, encourage like Jesus, speak and react like Jesus. Maybe one of the reasons that popular culture is questioning the goodness of Christianity 
is because our marriages look just like theirs. Our divorces look just like theirs. Our money and the way we handle it looks just like theirs. Our fear and our worry looks just like them. What if all they could see was our love? Our love. So, where do we begin? Where do, how do we get started? Now, look, let me be very clear. I'm not blaming you for someone out there who doesn't think Christianity is good. I'm not shouldering the blame myself either. But we've got to open our eyes and understand that if they don't think our faith is good, maybe it's because they don't see us as good. What are we going to do about that? Something's changed. Because when Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago, even in the midst of suffering and persecution, they flocked to the gospel by the tens of thousands. They started a first century church revolution. We're still feeling the impact from today. Something's changed. What can we do? I'm glad you asked. I made a list. Here's number one. Own it. Own it. Own it. When you have the opportunity to talk with someone about this kind of thing, own it. Don't be afraid to apologize. Don't be afraid to apologize for the church. See, an apology isn't a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of strength. That's how we're blameless and pure, according to Paul. When I realize I've done something wrong and I apologize to you, I'm blameless because I've taken care of my business. So own it. Here's number two. Believe it. Believe it. I didn't set out today to make somebody angry or make you uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable to me putting this together in my study this week. <laughs> but I've spoken the truth today. If Christianity is not good to some, then you and I, we've got something to do with that perception. So believe it. Here's number three, live it. Live it. Today is the day to stop arguing with people who see things differently. Today's the day. We're just going to turn that ship, okay? We're going to stop arguing with people who see things differently than we see them. Because you are not the culture cop, see? Nobody ever deputized you, right? Nobody ever deputized me. It's not our job to condemn culture. Listen to me, church. It's our, it's our job to light it up. That's our job. Here's number four. Forgive it. Forgive it. As we have failed others, others have most certainly failed us. You'll never love others the way Jesus loves you if you're not willing to forgive. So today, some of you need to make that forgiveness phone call. You need to have that forgiveness meeting this week. That forgiveness lunch, you need to put it behind you because a big part of loving and lighting is forgiving. Here's number five. Delete it. Delete it. Examine your Facebook posts. Examine your footprint in social media. For goodness sake, before you type it, think about it. Pray over it even, for goodness sakes. You may wish to delete it. And then finally, do it. Do it. Imagine a church that takes the spotlight off of the ills of popular culture and places it on themselves individually. Imagine a church that takes that light that Jesus spoke of 
And instead of shining it in the eyes of the people we disagree, we shined it at ourselves and took a long, hard look. Do it. See, Christianity is about authentic faith, real faith, genuine faith that's accompanied by action. In the first century, people ran to Christianity by the thousands. Again, even amidst the suffering, even amidst the persecution, they could not resist the good news. They couldn't do it. But something's changed. It's changed dramatically. Something is upside down in the church. Here's my challenge to you. Help us make Grace Community Church the right side up church. (laughs) Because if anything's going to improve our community, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. And believe it or not, You, and you, and you, and you, you are the mouthpiece of that good news. Let's pray. Father, make this a loving church. Help us find words that can communicate effectively when we're in that difficult spot of dealing with someone who You know, they're just not like us. They're not like us at all. In fact, the ways in which they're different bother us deeply. They trouble us. Father, forgive us for trying to imprint our Bible verse on their circumstance. Forgive us for trying to stamp our doctrine on a culture that's darkened. And God, use us to simply light our circle of influence. All of these things I pray because of my faith in your risen Son, Jesus Christ, the author of the good news. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.